Thank you, Lois. Um, some of you might already know this about me, but I'm kind of a, a history nerd. Um, when it comes to trying to understand something, I just always find kind of reading about the history helpful in orientating me to uh, uh, just what, uh, what that particular thing is, the context, all of that. And uh, so one thing I've been doing actually for the last couple of months since starting as pastor here is reading the history of this congregation. Um, that's just helped me kind of understand where this church has been, uh, God's faithfulness throughout its history, and then also, uh, hopefully, to some degree, where he's leading us as well. And uh, so as we start this sermon series looking at what it means to be God's church and his people, we put together a little video um, looking at some of the history of this congregation. And our hope is that with this series, uh, it'll lead to some dreaming about where God is, is leading us next in the, the years and uh, to come as a congregation here. And so um, we're going to show that video now, and uh, it'll kind of survey the history of our church and hopefully get us dreaming a little bit together. So, Most of you watching this probably know me. For those of you who don't, though, my name is Brandon Hahn, and I serve as the senior pastor at Ivanrest Church. Right now I'm standing outside 2687 Ivanrest Ave. Now the church building behind me isn't our church building. Instead it belongs to Iglesia Bautista Reconciliacion, or Reconciliation Baptist Church. We're here though because sometimes in order to understand who you are or where you're going, you need to understand where you've been. And this is where we, Ivanrest Church, have been. In fact, this is where we originally started. This is the original location of Ivanrest Church. It was started in 1926 as an evangelistic chapel to reach those in the area who didn't know Jesus. And that first year, they held open-air meetings outdoors. When the weather got too cold, they moved indoors to the E.L. Davis hardware store. And this building was constructed during the winter. This chapel served as Ivanrest's building for the next 40 years. Eventually, though, we moved. By that time, Ivanrest had become an organized church in the Christian Reformed Church of North America, Ivanrest CRC. And we needed a new worship space to accommodate our growing congregation. We built our current building here at 3777 Ivanrest Ave in 1966, and we've been here ever since. Originally designed as an educational wing, it was intentionally built without a sanctuary. Instead, the gathering room, as it came to be known, served for that purpose. It also provided the congregation with a place for community events, outreach opportunities, and fellowship, both for those in and outside the congregation. Ten years later, in 1976, we built this, our sanctuary. It looks different now than it originally did, but this is where we've been worshiping for the last 45 years. Now, as we enter the next chapter of our ministry here in Granville, new pastor, post-COVID, discerning where God is leading us next, we ask you to join us in praying for God's will for our church. What new things might he be calling us to try? What old things might he be calling us to try again? How can we, as a church with evangelism and outreach in our very DNA, continue to serve as the light and witness that God has called us to be here for the last 90 plus years? We are his church. We are his people. That's what we're gonna be talking about in this sermon series for the next couple of weeks. And our hope is that it will lead us to a better understanding of who we are and what God has called us to be. We've been following that call for the last 90 plus years. And so it's exciting to start dreaming together about where God might lead us next.
I don't think I'm ever going to get used to watching videos of myself, to be honest. It just makes me cringe the whole time. But that's exactly what we're hoping to do in this series, um, is to talk about who God has called us to be in the church as a whole, what it means to be his people uh, sort of on a larger level, big picture, but then also specifically here as his congregation in Granville. And uh, so that's what we'll be looking at for the next uh, six weeks. And we're going to start here, right at the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. I'd like to ask you to please open with me there. Uh, Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. And if you're struggling to find where that is in your Bible, it's right at the start. So, This is what the text says, Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image, In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky, all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it. I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, I remember hearing a story as a kid about a refugee family that had come to live here uh, in the United States. And I don't remember many of the details, where this particular family was from, what sort of situation they were fleeing as refugees. In fact, I don't even remember where I heard this story. Uh, But like a lot of the things that we remember from when we were kids, there was one part of that story that really stuck in my mind. You see, it turned out that this family was having some difficulty adjusting to their new apartment. Put simply, they weren't used to all the amenities that we have here in the United States. Uh, For instance, they hadn't had a dishwasher or refrigerator where they were from, and so those those things seemed strange and unnecessary. Um, Having come from a place where they only had outhouses, having an indoor bathroom was new for them. And they weren't used to the light switches either. That's something that one of their sponsors found out a day or two into their resettlement. She came over to visit them and ask how things were going. It's okay, they said. We're not used to all the new stuff we have, though. We don't really know how to use it. It's difficult to do things differently than what you're used to. Plus, our apartment is always so dark. Really? Asked the sponsor. Maybe some of the bulbs are burned out, and with that, she flicked on the light switch that was next to her. As the lights came on, there was a look of recognition that dawned on the refugees' faces. Oh, so that's what those things do, they said. We thought they were fingers sticking out of the wall or something, so we didn't want to touch them. And then they went from room to room, flipping on every light in the apartment. Now, like I said, I don't remember where I heard that story, but I've never forgotten it. Because even as a kid, that made sense to me. Right? If you've never seen a light switch before, if you're new to this country and, and you don't know how to turn on the lights here, 
then they might actually look like a finger sticking out of the wall, right? And if that was the case, then I wouldn't want to touch them either. You see, when you don't know what something's for, then you don't know how to use it. Instead, it might confuse you. You might avoid it. You might even end up using it incorrectly. That's because to really make the most of something, to really use it to its full potential, you need to know what it it does. You need to know its purpose, its plan, what it's designed to do. And I would say that the same thing is true of us as human beings. Like those refugees not knowing what their light switches were for, um, and then as a result not using them. If we don't know what we are for, what our purpose is, what we're designed to do as human beings, then we're not really going to know how to live our lives either. And so that's where we're going to start as we begin this sermon series. Because I think if, if we're going to try to understand what it means to, to live and exist as God's people, his church today, then I think we need to start by talking about what it means to simply be people in the first place. What's our purpose as human beings? Why did God make us? Or to put it more philosophically, what's the meaning of our lives? That's where I think we need to start if we're going to understand who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live as God's people today. Because I would say that at least part of who and what we're supposed to be as Christians is actually a restoration and reflection of who and what God originally meant us to be in the beginning. And so let's start there, in the beginning. You know, the first thing I think we need to notice about this passage is actually how different the the creation account in Genesis is from the other ancient creation accounts that we know of. Um, And I'll just, uh, right off the bat, be up front, not everyone actually thinks that's the case. This is something some scholars talk quite a bit about. Um, Take the first few chapters of Genesis, what they do is they take the first few chapters of Genesis, they sort of put them up side by side with some of the other ancient creation narratives that we know about, Uh, and then what they say is, look how similar they are. You know, they actually make the case that it's almost like Genesis was sort of copying its content from some of those other creation stories. There's a lot of overlap, and they make the case that there isn't really anything all that unique about the biblical story. And to some extent, they're right. That's because Genesis does actually have some similarities to some other stories that ancient people told about the creation of the world. Specifically, the creation account in Genesis has some key things in common with the Babylonian creation account, which was called the Enuma Elish. For instance, both Genesis and the Enuma Elish start by talking about a watery chaos that existed before creation. Um, then once creation begins, they both talk about those waters being separated from each other as, as the heavens and earth are formed. And finally... Both of them also say that that whole process of creation took seven days, a full week from start to finish. But that's also where the similarities end. Because apart from those broad parallels, when you really start to drill down on what Genesis says compared to the Enuma, Elish, and the other ancient creation narratives as well, it turns out that the biblical account is actually saying some radically different and unique things about God about his creation, and also about us as human beings. For starters, as far as I can tell, Genesis is the only creation account that tells us that God actually wanted to create. In all the other creation accounts we know of, creation happens kind of as, kind of as an accident, as an afterthought. 
an unintended consequence of something else that was going on. For example, in the Enuma Elish specifically, creation turns out to be a byproduct of a battle that a few of the gods are having in heaven. In the story, the god Marduk is fighting a war for supremacy. He wants to become the head god of all the other gods in the Babylonian pantheon. And along the way, he ends up inadvertently creating the world uh, every time that he kills one of the other gods. Whenever he's doing battle and he, he, he's victorious over one of the other gods and kills them, their body becomes some part of our creation in the story. And in our case, as human beings, we actually come to life when the blood of one of them mixes with some mud. It's not a very good start, okay? But creation was never his purpose. It's clear from the story that Marduk wasn't trying to create human beings, trying to give us life. Instead, all he was trying to do was win the war in heaven and become the head god. Everything else that happens in the story, including our creation as human beings, it's all just unintended consequences. Instead of collateral damage, according to the Enuma Elish, you could say that we are collateral creation. We're not intentionally made or, or designed we just kind of happen. And then once we're here, we don't really have much of a purpose either. That's because once he accidentally creates us as human beings, Marduk makes us the servants of the gods. That's what the uh, Enuma Elish and other ancient creation narratives say that we're here for. That's our purpose. That's our role, to simply be the slaves of the gods. That's the meaning of our lives. Bondage and servitude. So take all of that, and let's just compare it for a moment to what we just read in Genesis chapter one. On day six of his creation, God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And then skipping down to verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now there are a few things that I think we need to take note of from this passage. First, according to Genesis, God's work of creation is not the unintended consequence of something else that he's doing, something else that's going on, some war or some battle. Instead, much to the contrary, it's the only thing that's going on. Unlike these other creation myths, God doesn't accidentally create the world as part of something else he's doing. Instead, creation is the only thing he's doing. It's his sole purpose, his sole focus. It's his intent here in this passage. That's what he set out to do. He wanted to create. And specifically, he wanted to create us. That's the second thing to notice here. I don't have time to get into all the nerdy details about this, but I'll suffice it to say that from beginning to end, the biblical account makes it abundantly clear that we as human beings are not an accident. In fact, quite the opposite. What this passage shows is that we are the high point of God's creative work. That's clear actually just from the way that this passage is structured. 
See, one of the most beautiful things about Genesis 1, at least to me, is how God progressively forms and shapes his creation each day of the account. For instance, he starts with a completely empty creation. The first verses of this chapter say that the earth was formless and empty. And so what God does is he separates things. He separates the heavens and the earth the skies and the seas, the land and the water. And then on days four through six, what he does is he starts filling that empty creation. He covers the ground with plants and trees. He scatters the sun, moon, and stars across the sky. He fills the seas with fish and the air with birds. He makes all the animals in their great diversity and variety. And each day, each step of the way, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then finally, after all that good creating, he comes to us. Let us make mankind in our image, he says, in our likeness. And so he does. He blesses us and says, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And then he stands back and he looks over his entire creation and he says, it's very good. In other words, this whole chapter builds up to these verses that we're looking at this morning. It builds to our creation. Unlike the other ancient creation accounts, we're not some afterthought here in Genesis 1. We're not some accident. Instead, we're actually the pinnacle of everything that God's doing here. We're the coup de grace. We're God's pride and joy, the thing that he is most proud of. And what's so cool about Genesis 1 is that that is clear even from the way that this chapter is structured and laid out. But the other thing that's clear here is that God made us for a purpose. That's the third thing we need to see from these verses. God created us for a reason. He created us to do something. He's given us work. And it's not just to be his servants, it's not to be his slaves, it's not to spend our existence toiling away for his benefit and luxury the way that those other myths say we were here for. Instead, God created us to rule, to hold dominion over his world, to steward it on his behalf. That's what we, as human beings, all of us, are intended to do. That's our purpose, that's our goal, that's the meaning of our lives, to rule God's world on his behalf. Now I do just need to pause here and and point out one important thing, which is that that kind of rule isn't the way that we typically think of it, okay? Uh, When we think of a good ruler these days, at least in our current culture, we think of someone authoritative, Uh, Someone who calls the shots, right? Someone who's his own man. Someone who's a strong, independent woman. Someone who knows what they think, says it like it is, and doesn't take any back talk from anyone else. Those are the kind of leaders that we tend to gravitate towards, at least at the current moment. We like the idea of strong, self-assured, dominant personalities. But this passage is talking about a different kind of rule, It's not the kind of ruler God created us to be, at least not when it comes to stewarding his creation. It's certainly what some people think God created us to be. They take our modern ideas of power and authority, they read them into this text, and they say God created us to rule this world. He gave us this world to subdue, so let's get out there, take control of this world, and put it to work for us. 
The only problem is that that's not what this passage is saying. Instead, I would say that's a pretty self-serving misreading of it. Because the fact is that God didn't create this world for us to dominate. He didn't lovingly, carefully, you know, form and shape his creation so that he could give it to us and we could then ride roughshod all over it. He didn't create everything in this world just to give it to us so that we could bully it into submission. And that's not what he created us for either, to be exploitive, oppressive, manipulative tyrants over his world. Instead, he created us as human beings so that we might live and rule his world the way that he would. That's the kind of rulers God created us to be. That's the purpose he gave us. That's the work he called us to do. As we say in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Genesis 1 answers the age-old question, what is our purpose? What's our meaning of life? What are we here for by saying, it's that. To rule and steward God's world in such a way that his will is done here, just as it is in heaven. And in order to see that, we need look no further than how he created us in his image. You know, the original readers of this text, the ancient Israelites, would have been very familiar with the concept of images in ways that we just aren't in our modern world anymore. For starters, that's how most of the people around them worshiped their gods, right? They made images of their god. That's how you knew which people went with which god. Um, Oh, that group of people over there? They're Baal worshipers. You can actually see their little statue of him right there. They believe he's going to give them a good harvest and take care of everything that they need. And that's part of what images represented in those cultures. They represented which God you looked to and depended on as the source of your life and well-being. But they also represented who was in charge. That's the other thing that people were saying when they made images of their gods. They were saying, this is the God not only who provides and cares for me, but this is the God that I am subject to, whose authority I am under, the God to whom I'm accountable. And so when people saw an image of their God, it was a a reminder not just of who took care of them, but it was also a reminder of who was in charge. And the same thing uh, was actually true for the human rulers of the time. See, it wasn't just the gods who had images of themselves that they put up, that the people would put up. The kings and queens of the ancient world actually did the same thing. In fact, that's actually part of how they marked their domain. See, back then, people didn't have border crossings and welcome centers the way that that we do today. Indicate that you're leaving one country and entering another. You know, now leaving Egypt, entering the promised land of Israel. They didn't have welcome signs and, and customs centers for those sorts of things. And so, what the what the rulers of the ancient world did is they would create these little statues of themselves that they would place all along the borders and boundaries of their kingdom. And what that did was it was a reminder. It was a reminder to everyone who lived there and all who might pass through who the ruler of that area was, whose domain they were in, whose authority they were under. Okay, so with all that in mind, about how images worked in the ancient world, what do you think it means when Genesis 1 says that we are created in God's image? Well, it actually means the exact two same things. 
First, like the gods of old, the fact that we're made in God's image means that right there in the very way we're made, we testify to who our true creator, sustainer, and provider is. And the strange thing is that's actually true whether you believe in God or not, right? I mean, if you're a human being, then you're made in the image of God. And so your very existence says something about who ultimately sustains and safeguards your life. That's the thing here. As human beings, as image bearers of God, all of us, we point to the source of our existence, whether we happen to know the source of that existence or not. And we also point to the fact that he is in charge. And that's because like the images ancient kings and queens used to set up on their boundaries, as God's image bearers, we signify the extent of his reign. We mark the borders of his kingdom, his dominion, his domain. In essence, by making us in his image, part of what God is saying is wherever you see one of these, wherever you see another human being, you will know that you are within my realm where I am in control and where my will must be done. And I'll be honest with you, that's part of what so broke my heart last summer when George Floyd was killed. A week after he died last May, I forced myself to watch the entire nine-minute video of his arrest, and I'll be honest, I'm not much interested in debating the politics of it. The fact that that incident even became politicized in the first place is baffling to me. It demonstrates to me that we have now reached a point as a society where we are incapable of telling right from wrong. Because when people can no longer see that paying with a counterfeit bill or even resisting arrest does not deserve death, we have lost our moral compass. When people deny that racism, bigotry, and inequality towards people of color are still very much alive and well in this country, if they ever even faded, it denies the reality of sin and evil in our very midst. And when people try to justify kneeling on another human being's neck for minutes on end as they beg for their life, slowly go unconscious, and eventually slip into a coma that they'll never wake up from, then they deny the image of God and the inherent dignity, value, and worth in that person. You see, George Floyd was created to rule. He was created in the image of God. He was created with the same purpose, task, and mission as the rest of us, to steward God's world and rule it the way that he would. I don't know if he knew that. I don't know if he cared like all of us, that's what he was created for. And that's part of what broke my heart last summer. There are many sad facts about George Floyd's death and much of it was obscured in the ensuing conversation and debate that took place in our culture and society. But one of the saddest parts was that it demonstrated just how far we are from who God created us to be as human beings. And yet that is also why God has given his church to his world. You see, the fact is that as human beings, we are broken, fallen, and sinful beyond repair. All of us, each and every one of us. We don't steward God's creation the way we're supposed to. We don't rule this world the way that he would. In other words, we don't image God very well. 
In fact, most of the time, it seems like we try to make him in our image more than we try to live into his. In a word, I think it's fair to say that we are failures when it comes to the purpose that God created us to have. And yet the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of God's grace is that he has never given up on us. Instead, he sent us a savior. Jesus Christ, God's own son, came to earth to live among us. He came to do for us what we never could, which was to live out the purpose he created us to have sinlessly and perfectly. And then, though he did not sin himself, he died in our place for our sins so that we might have forgiveness and reconciliation with the God who made us. Finally, he rose to new life so that we might experience new life in him. Through his death and resurrection and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, he has begun the process of restoring our hearts, remaking us in his image, and renewing us so that we can live as the kind of people he created us to be in the beginning. That's who we are. That's who we're meant to be as Christians. That's what we're meant to do as the church. We're the people that God has restored to his image. And so that's what we have to offer the world as Christian believers. A glimpse of who we're meant to be. A glimpse of our true purpose. A glimpse of who God created us in the beginning. And through his son, a glimpse of who he has also restored us to be as well. That's what we're going to talk about these next couple of weeks as we explore what it means to be God's people and his church. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, in the beginning, you made us in your image. You made us to be your people. Because of our sin, we are a far cry from that. But through Jesus Christ, you have remade us in your image once again. Help us to live as your people, as your image bearers, each and every day of our lives, as we claim and profess the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.